0: Tedious, repetitive tasks are better handled by machines. Unless such tasks truly require human intelligence, they're often good candidates for automation. Implementing process automation can be challenging and technical. Increasingly, engineers are seeking out tools and platforms to facilitate faster, more reliable automation. In this episode, I talk to Yasser Sharif, co-founder and CEO of Axiom, about no-code solutions, process automation, and some of the challenges in developing the software powering those services. Yasser, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Sure, thanks. It's great to be back, Carl.
0: So for listeners who uh, may have spent, you know, listening to a few other things in between your first appearance, can you give us a quick reminder of what is Axiom.ai?
1: Yes, uh, Axiom is a no-code uh, browser automation. So it's a bit like an Excel macro where you record clicks and keyboard events, only uh, we do that for the whole web. And what's a typical use case? So most people are automating moving data around. You know, Have you heard the phrase ETL, uh, Extract Transform Load? Absolutely, so yeah. We- it's, it's very common to copy data from one system and paste it into another. Now, that might sound fairly dull, but, you know, there, there's a lot of that kind of stuff out there. So, you know, a very typical use case for Axiom is literally just um, moving data between systems. It's a very common thing. Like you might do that in a e-commerce, for example, when you fulfill an order, you might copy it from your, your online shop into your fulfillment partner's website, for example.
0: Sometimes I'll have the option to achieve a goal like that with some sort of software integration, like you know an API or just some connector. Why do I need Axiom? Or are there reasons on top of that for places that don't have APIs?
1: Well, yes, the, that latter reason is pretty much the, the main reason, but it's not the only one. So, you know, there's a whole... I'd, I'd argue the majority of the web actually doesn't have APIs, the vast majority of systems. So, you know, for example, going back to the e-commerce example... If you have lots and lots of different products and lots and lots of different fulfillment partners, not every one of those will necessarily have an API into the system, particularly if you've got some obscure product. So you still get a lot of people doing this kind of admin task. There's another scenario where actually like, if you're doing some work and like repetitive work, and it's a very visual thing, like for example, producing a design on Canva or Figma, um, it's very natural to describe your steps as user interface actions rather than via script. It's more intuitive for a person to do that. So you could say one thing is there's no APIs. And the other thing is uh, user interfaces might be more intuitive in you know, certain domains like visual ones.
0: And would it be fair to say you're kind of creating the APIs on behalf of all those web apps that have not delivered on one yet? Or is that too cynical a way to look at it?
1: That's definitely one way to look at it on a macro view, basically what we aim to do, and I think what a lot of the web automation tools aim to do, because there's, there's a few out there with different spins is, you know, we all aim to turn the whole web into an API. It just isn't there yet. So you could say we're kind of making increasing the total addressable uh, automation space for things on the web.
0: So your solution is no code um, I think most listeners will know it, but it worth might be worth doing a quick definition of no code but what I'm really curious about is why is that the right choice for a tool like yours
1: yeah uh, so what we do has has a whole bunch of developer tools actually so what we do is often called robotic process automation um, it's a bit of a misnomer because there's no robots involved but you know there are there are software robots and there's a whole bunch of like developer tools for this kind of thing. A very famous ones are called UiPath, who I think one of the first, you know, one of the well, probably one of the biggest IPOs this year uh, for this kind of space. Those tools are very much developer tools, and it means that there's a whole bunch of stuff that you know your average admin person or even you know someone who's doing something higher value like sales, for example, aren't really amenable to automation unless you get in touch with a developer. So. By making it no code, you basically enable a longer tail of things to be automated, stuff that, okay, maybe isn't something that you can just involve a development team with a a large budget to, like a a smaller automation that, you know, maybe a sales stuff or something that changes quickly that wouldn't be a big development project.
0: No code has been uh, quite a trend and I guess a buzzword at this point over the last, I don't know, five years is maybe the time horizon. Uh, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on how far we've come as a field that is, you know, developing no code options and where things are headed.
1: Yeah, so this is one of the really interesting things I I probably didn't get a chance to talk about last time, but the space is changing so rapidly. We can be really cynical about it. Uh, I definitely am a lot of the time. When I go on Product Hunt, for example, there's another no code tool every other day. So the cynical take on this is they're all doing the same thing, right? But actually, they're not. What we're actually seeing is there's this halo effect from all the no-code tools uh, coming together. You know, if you're a programmer, you think in terms of programming language and domain-specific languages. And, you know, what's actually occurring with no-code is you've got this plethora of different programming paradigms effectively, different domain-specific languages to do different things. And when you put them together, you get something a lot more than the sum of their parts. This is something that we really see with Axiom, actually. It's quite exciting to see someone Okay, use a web automation like Axiom with Zapier who are API automations, and then connect that up to something like an Airtable, which is like a no-code way to deal with data. So one of the really exciting things is actually to see all of the stuff come together to make something bigger. And, you know, I could talk about this for quite a while because we've seen a lot of different you know movements in the community here. But um, yeah, it, it's changing very rapidly.
0: No code tends to be fairly democratizing because anybody can use it, or in theory, I guess, at least a little bit lower barrier to entry than learning to be a programmer, learning the libraries, getting into a code base. Yet some of your services are the types of things developers would probably want to be doing. Do you have a vision or an idea of who your
1: common users are? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. So a lot of our expectations have been upturned a little recently you know we originally assumed that the only people that would use this would be non-technical people and we started with that in mind but what's very interesting with a lot of no code tools is a lot of developers are actually p- turning into power users of the system so we have people that use axiom that could write something in selenium which is the, the dominant framework or puppeteer which is what we're based on as well but it takes ages to do that kind of thing and even as a developer like it's just faster sometimes to use a no code tool like us Um, I mean, I see something similar with Webflow, for example, like, you know, I can code up a website really easily, but if I I had to throw up a little marketing website, I would just use Webflow. It's just faster. So like what's been really interesting is to see that actually it's not just non-technical people that use tools like us. It's even developers when they just want to get a job done quickly or want to get a job done that they can just hand on to other people in their team to manage. So um. What's exciting about no code is it's it's not just non-technical people. I, I would argue like, you know, there's a significant amount of coders and developers who, you know, are power users of no code tools.
0: When I look through some of the recipes and examples on your site, they seem to be concise processes I might want to automate. So if there is, you know, the example you gave earlier of e-commerce, you want to get a price off a site, or maybe I want to check my competitor's site, see what their pricing is, perhaps store that in a database Those all seem like straightforward processes to set up an axiom. And it could be standalone. Maybe that's all I need is that one simple service from you. Do you see patterns in adoption? Do people solve one problem and and that's good enough? Or are there like enterprise scale rollouts that you're participating in?
1: Yeah, so that's another good question. There's kind of two ways to, to, to run our bots, you could say. One is like a microservice where it's just a really small, tiny little process. But then another way is also to glue these things together. The really tricky thing with with gluing a lot of these things together, and it's actually one of the things we're working on, is the more complex the process, the higher the probability of failure. Right. So, if you're in RPA, uh, the space we're in, where you automate using user interfaces rather than APIs, uh, failure is like it, it's it's like the dirty secret of the industry. Like a lot of RPA bots actually have relatively high failure rates in comparison to everything else. Um, And a lot of the technical challenges revolve around basically making them as reliable as possible, which is a lot easier said than done. So the more more little processes you glue together, the higher the probability that the overall process fails. But therein lies kind of the technical challenge that, you know, we aim to solve and I think everybody else aims to solve. But, um, yeah, in answer to your question, you do get um, very, very large, complex processes being built up and you do get smaller ones. But, you know, like with anything in RPA, the more complex the process is, the more challenging it is to automate, basically.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of potential for failure. Not even something that is your fault or even within your control. There could be a third-party service that, uh, like my competitor's website I mentioned, I want to crawl. And if it goes down, the task is going to fail. How can you crawl a downed website? But of course, then I'm maybe upset with you, not my competitor. I didn't know their site was down. Do you face any challenges on communicating nature of failure and helping users come up with good recovery strategies?
1: Yeah, there's definitely challenges there. I mean, the most common cause of failure for um for web automations is is the website changing. Anybody who's ever written um, a scraper knows about this. Uh, it's actually the main reason why a lot of people want to outsource that kind of problem to a company like us, because you know why would you as a developer want to spend a lot of time writing algorithms to deal with this? Because the algorithms are completely non-trivial. You we basically what we end up having to do is thing like do things like fingerprint elements if the website changes, look at the structure again and try to refine it. And a lot of the time, even that is enough. And so the simplest thing is to allow people to reselect it when the page changes. But um, yeah, I mean, you definitely face problems communicating that to people that things change and these things are by nature a little bit harder than API automations. Um, You could say like, you know, in the fullness of time, it's that kind of problem that we aim to solve. Certainly, we couldn't solve it if a website came down. But, you know, being insensitive to page changes, being able to deal with all the complexities of the web is, um, you know, the, the crux of our technical challenge, really.
0: When it comes to web crawling, I think in most cases, if you obey what websites put in their robots.txt file and you're pretty kind about your rate limiting, you're not likely to be blocked or anything like that. Just to, in my anecdotal experience. However, there are some web properties that you know, go the extra mile or the extra 10 miles in trying to prevent uh, crawling and things like that. Where do you fall in? uh, What's your perspective on that? How does the tool or or how do you want the tool to function when there's a site that's potentially kind of uh, aggressive in defending itself?
1: Yeah, so um, basically there's this tension between what, what website visitors want to do and the platforms. So we don't stop people doing anything unless it's bad or illegal. So we have stopped cases when people have been harassing others on social networks. We've unfortunately seen that and we'll put a stop to it. There's other stuff that, that does occur that okay, which is basically breaking a site's terms of service. Um, you know, with tools like that, we it's not actually our core focus. If you want to go in and like pull data out of the system, we give you, okay, we have a tool set that lets you do that. But that's not necessarily our core business. Where we actually aim to be is something that's kind of like win-win for the platform that we're automating. So a good example is the e-commerce one, because if we help people sell more on Amazon, you know, we're on Amazon's good side. In contrast with LinkedIn, LinkedIn don't like you taking their data. So you're constantly against the platform. Although we allow users to use our tool that way, we don't really want to get caught up in an arms race with all of these platforms. That's not what we aim to do. But um, yeah, it's a very good question. It really boils down to, uh, in our case, focusing on what we aim to be like win-win for us, the user and the platform. But um, it doesn't always work out that way.
0: And if I were, let's say, an analyst or someone who wants to do some process automation, and maybe I've got enough free reign within my organization, I can try my own tools and explore and things like that. If I want to give Axiom a try, what are my steps to getting set up?
1: Yeah, it's just uh, going on the website now and uh, installing the Chrome extension. So right now there's an extra step which we'll remove very shortly. Is you have to install a desktop app with it. Um, that's to do with you know various things with a uh, Google basically. Uh, Google have a framework that we use called Puppeteer. But very soon you won't need to do that because we have a we have a product that lets you run it in the cloud relatively easily. The long story short, it can be as simple as installing a Chrome extension, working off a template, or you know then building a bot yourself if you can.
0: So that's an easy install and setup. What's the workflow like and the learning curve? How do I really get going with my process automation?
1: A lot of the time, the best way to get going with with not just us, but with you know tools like Airtable or Zapier is look at templates other people have made. I use Airtable a bit as well, and you know making my own Airtable, or a very complicated one, takes a while. It can be a bit of a pain, but if I find the closest thing that somebody else has made to what I want to do, and then work off that Airtable template, I can have something quite sophisticated. And it's very similar with Axiom. So you can try and build something yourself, but if you look at what other people have done, and quite say stand on the shoulders of giants, because that makes it sound a bit too grandiose, but if you look at what other people have done and build on it, you can go a lot further than just if you try and start from scratch. So that's what we re- really recommend as a starting point.
0: My process when I'm developing software or well what it should be is write the test make the test work but <laughs> more often than not i find it's write some bad code watch it fail and fix it and i just kind of iterate until there's no more things to fix what's the experience like developing from scratch uh, if i don't have a good recipe to follow how do i you know fail fast and get where i'm going
1: it's very similar to coding uh, to 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 be, to be honest like that that's the thing that um you know some people some people can can come to terms with quite quickly and other people find it a little bit of a shock Making anything like from scratch can involve a bit of trial and iteration, and like just to set it clear, set clear expectations rather than like you know sugarcoat it, it can be tough going to like get something perfect. Um, usually, what happens is you can get eighty percent of the way there really quickly. It's very similar with you know to check out proof of concept, and that's actually one of the main things people do with Axiom. Like you get a lot of startups try and make something that just tests a proof of concept out, and you can get 80% of the way there really quickly. It's that last 10-20% that takes so much longer. If you want to try and make something ready for production, for example, that's when things get can be painful, to be frank. But I think that's the same with anything in software. You know, the first 80% is relatively easy, and it's it's that little bit of refinement to get something perfect, which which really has the hard graft. But you know, I, I think our our users that are sort of power users of no-code tools know this already.
0: And when you think about growth, I imagine a lot of different ways that you could be expanding, uh, maybe a, a richer library of those recipes that use the existing tools and, and just show them off in different ways, or maybe it's new components and pieces that you're adding in. Uh, what does growth look like for you?
1: Yeah, it's basically expanding out from what we see now as the power user use case. So when we first, what we've, what we've identified as the people that are most capable of using Axiom are pre-existing users of no-code tools. So what we found is if you're a Zapier user or an Integromat user, you're quite likely to want to automate a lot of stuff already. So it's a good leading indicator to use Axiom. You know, so we don't have a, a Zapier app on the store just yet. It's just about to launch, but a very obvious thing for us to do is, okay, move out from say Zapier to Airtable, to Integromat, to you know, this, this large ecosystem of tools that like, as I mentioned, has a halo effect. You know, from there what we really want to do is lower the barrier to entry because right now really the only people that get going are existing no code users. But, you know, we think by making the tool a little easier we can, we can expand out. Um, I mean, um, the templates are a really good way actually to test this. Like quite often we'll do the same thing Zapier did which is basically put up a template which is kind of like an example of what can be done and kind of speculatively put it up and see if anybody wants it. And sometimes people just come along and bite and then we find there's this market that we you know, didn't know about before. So like you know, you could say the growth playbook is, you know, it's been done before. It's quite similar to what Zapia did really.
0: When I think about the ETL use cases, they seem kind of straightforward. You know, get some data from someplace, maybe process it and store it someplace else. But when I think about process automation, it, it often feels like a harder problem. There are decisions to be made, conditions to be thought about, filtering to do. Can you talk about how that's all possible in the no-code world?
1: With difficulty. I think, I think you actually hit the nail on the head for a really hard problem here. Quite often, it's like the decision logic that's the hardest bit. Uh, doing decision logic in no-code is, is, is just really not easy. You know, you what ends up happening is you need to have to use lots of workaround and hacks to try and get a complex decision process to work. Luckily with Axiom, we're, you know, we're a Chrome extension. So we can do something that Zapier can't do, which is to hand back to the end user to make a decision. All right. So you can have a workflow where, okay, the bot does a certain number of steps, but then you hand back to an end user to to act like a human being to to um make a decision and then hand back to a bot to take carry on. That's what we do now with a lot of things, but you know, it's a it's a bit of a privilege from basically being a Chrome extension and being attached to end users, which isn't something you know some of these other you know workflow tools that run in the background have.
0: If I think about I don't know some type of software like let's say a, a paintbrush or a drawing application, uh, if you asked me to go build one. I feel like I could just get started. I have a pretty good sense of the primitives. You know, there's paint and uh, change the color, add text. There's these sort of intuitions that someone figured out a long time ago, uh, because, of course, paint programs are old. No code workflow and process automation is new. Do you feel that those same primitives exist already, or do you have to invent the language that Axiom
1: uses? Well, there's a little bit of both now that you mention it. What's really interesting as a primitive is the table and spreadsheet structure. So like, you know, if you're a coder, you think about lots of different data types, you know, arguably data is more important than the algorithm or data really defines the algorithm. But what we've actually found is, you know, non-coders, they think in terms of spreadsheets. Um, that is, that's like the, you know, the data primitive. And that's basically how a lot of axiom automations work. So for example, the starting point is usually when you do, is usually a spreadsheet. so like you know if you want to like do ETL, someone will think about it in terms of a spreadsheet structure. So we do have that primitive. The more complicated primitives I think revolve around um, I guess, things in the user interface that people haven't done before. That's when we're kind of like you know making up new concepts. There's a few though, like you know again, it sort of harks back to programming primitives as well, like you know teaching a, teaching a no coder, like the concept of a variable is one. In our case, the variable might be like, okay, what you put into the form and getting them to think in those terms. But um, I would say there's actually an analog to, there's usually like a an analog to everything in programming in your particular, you know, no code paradigm. There's, there's an analog to something somewhere, like for example, you know, subroutines, um, concepts like, you know, <laughs> polymorphism and abstraction. They actually all do come in, but you don't use those words when you're talking to to users. A no code
0: option is uh, one of the things that appeals to me about it is it's kind of declarative. I draw out my process and uh, as long as I've drawn it correctly, I can just kind of take for granted that the system's going to handle it for me. Although that's really just a shifting of the burden now. Axiom has to make sure to fully deliver on that workflow I've described. Um, do you face any scalability challenges uh, as you make these processes people build and and see them kind of push them out into either bigger crawls or bigger data sets or something along those lines?
1: Yeah, I think the main scalability challenge with respect to complexity is, um, like I mentioned, going back to the failure point. The probability of failure almost tends to one with the number of steps. So, like if you have uh, if you have like a two or three-step bot, it's pretty reliable. If it turns into a 30-step bot, um, there's a lot of other problems where you know, there's the, the probability of failure basically obviously multiplies as you go through the system, right? So you have to have these problems of, of like, you know, requeuing things, um, dealing with error cases, that kind of thing. Is there anything unique about being a no-code platform for your approach
0: to error handling?
1: Basically, you have to have to have a whole bunch of workflows around error reporting and notifying people about errors and stuff like that. And um, you know, which kind of, you don't have as much of that in the API space. So when you connect two APIs together, like Stripe does, you don't re- think about errors too much. You do get the odd thing where like, okay, you know, like a, this payment failed for that particular reason, so you have to work it out. But we have to start to do things like, okay, when the bot fails under these conditions, send a so, you know, send a message to someone. There's, um, yeah, that, that, that does introduce significant challenges. Like the most common things that we need to, you know, problems we need to solve are basically around requeuing when there's problem cases and notifying people in case of errors. Like I said, the way we solve this now is basically to hand back to the end user um, in some respect. I mean, like I said, the, um, the double-edged sword about being in the, being in the browser is you're, you're attached to an individual, uh, so you can actually hand back to them. When you think about process automation, what industries or maybe specific companies are really doing it well? Like I've mentioned Zapier lots of times because I think they're really doing it well. I think they've, uh, Integramat too, uh, you know, they've recently emerged as a competitor. I guess they're basically like Zapier with different pricing. There's a lot of these automation tools that exist that people don't actually like them. Usually sh- like, you know, the, those are usually like enterprise tools. And, you know, you get this phenomenon where a lot of enterprise stuff is just sold via, it's just it's just like a good sales process and not necessarily a good product. But these bottom-up tools like Zapier and Airtable, they're the ones that do it well because people want to use them. Uh, they're adopted bottom-up in an organization. The only way Zapier and Airtable succeed is if their product is excellent. So, yeah, in my opinion, anybody who's doing a bottom-up workflow automation in any way uh, and succeeding must be doing it well by definition because people are choosing to use the product. They don't have it imposed on them like you know with enterprise automation stuff.
0: Are there any novel or interesting use cases you can
1: share? Yeah, there've been lots of um, lots of weird ones. I mean, okay, the novel ones. I could actually write a whole um, blog post on this, but I'd have to I'd have to be be careful about what we talk about. Some some of the more interesting ones revolve around, um, I guess, people backing up their private image galleries. You can imagine what people's private image galleries might be like. Um, that seems to be a thing. There seems to be a lot of um, people who do you know like people who aspire to the 4 hour work week who've built a bot to I don't know do some drop shipping and automate um some a whole series of obscure stuff like the 4 hour work week persona is you know someone someone we talk about a lot basically they've they found some niche thing and they want to automate it some of the more interesting ones actually uh, are like um, around crypto lately we've started to see a lot of people because you know crypto is like a wild west and you don't have apis and lots of systems so we start to see a lot of like day crypto traders you know monitor nfts and things like that so yeah i mean the more interesting ones are anywhere like anytime you get a new nascent industry which is like a wild west sometimes like it's in finance for example where you don't have apis and system you start to see all these these weird things emerge where people will will try and automate it just because um, like I said, it doesn't have an API, and that correlates with um, anything new, basically. The advent of the pandemic has
0: changed a lot about the way people work. We're more remote and things like that. Has it changed any of the way people leverage Axiom?
1: Well, to begin with, we had like, you know, the pandemic's been really interesting because lots of things have gone back and forth. We've seen like with people working from home, there seem to be a lot more people running like little side hustles here and there. Like that seems to be in a bit of a thing like that. Um, yeah. The notion of a side hustle has been, been a lot more common. There's been some interesting pandemic related ones. I don't know how moral they are. We've had a few people try and book COVID vaccinations during the peak of the vaccination thing. Uh, we were wondering whether to block that one because it was like, well, it's unfair if you're using a bot to book a, to book a vaccination, but we let them do it anyway. That was one of the more interesting ones. Yeah. Yeah. I see the debate. That's a tough one. Yeah, we saw it happening quite regularly, and we were just like, well, yeah, it was a kind of like a medical ethics thing. But yeah, uh, yeah I think that that that, that particular phase has passed now, as you know, vaccinations have become more prolific. Uh, we see some other ones, which um, like you know, like we've started to move away from as well, like you know, the um, the kind of people who like buy like who sort of arbitrage products, like you know, the sort of scalper cases. Initially, we were okay with that because it seemed to look like e-commerce, but we've started to like really deprecate it. So when it comes to those
0: side hustles and maybe early stage entrepreneurs, is the idea that Axiom is just one of many tools I use, or is it potentially the platform upon which I
1: build my business? Well, actually both. So like, you know, it's not, by definition, it's often not the only tool. Uh, by definition, it's often connecting together other systems. But it is a platform which people build their businesses. So we've had like, you know, uh, people build unique Unique businesses on Canva where they make templates on mass with Axiom. We've had people build unique businesses on Webflow, again where they make templates on mass. Um, we've had fintechs uh, use Axiom, where it's basically how like you know I mentioned this in the last the last uh, podcast, but like um, like how Plaid got started when you don't have APIs into banks. When they started doing this, we we found it a little bit you know concerning. but People would like automate online banking stuff to basically simulate an API because they had no other option. But um, yeah, that was, that's that been an interesting one. So yeah, we, like it's really common with startups actually. By definition, startups are trying to do something new and very often new things don't have APIs. So we really do see, yeah, we see lots of people trying to build their businesses on us. A uh, food delivery seems to be another one that seems to be cropping up. Um, like lots of places don't have like their menus as APIs. So, you know, it's a prolific place for bots basically.
0: When you look at the biggest adopters, people who are doing the most with Axiom, what backgrounds are they coming from?
1: Uh, startups and SMEs seem to be the majority ones, or, or solopreneurs. When we first started, actually, we were looking at the enterprise sector, but uh, the enterpri- the way this kind of automation works in the enterprise is top down. You need to do it via enterprise sales and all these other things. So, like, you know, we built Axiom, like I mentioned, as a bottom up product, and it's very much in the mold of Zapier and Airtable. And, if you look at how, you know, Zapier's trajectory has evolved, it pretty much, you know, it started, I think now it's used more in enterprise, but certainly when it started, the the early adoption was um, you know, SME and startups. Yeah, like our, our sort of our typical user is an SME startup and or solopreneur, you know, a time poor solopreneur is the kind of person who loves automation. Uh, they've used a no code tool before. They may have some existing workflows set up and, you know, they see how Axiom can maybe plug the gaps in their zaps or something similar. Can you speculate on what the adoption of process automation
0: looks like maybe five to 10 years out?
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be everywhere, really. I think right now what ends up happening is automation is always a big project and people don't bother to automate because there's like this activation energy where it it like it takes developer time, it takes a lot of effort, all these other things to automate something. So things just don't get done that way. And a lot of technology just when you move something forward, you just make something cheaper. What no code is doing is making automation cheaper, right? So like I kind of see like as these no code, as these automation tools become more prolific, they lower the activation energy to automation. So they kind of make anything, you know, no matter how seemingly trivial, automatable. Yeah, I can, can only see that trend increasing.
0: So if I install the Chrome plugin, does that help me with interacting and building workflows and things? Or does that mean the work actually
1: runs on my machine? Uh, they can run on your physical machine and they on they could run in our cloud. We had, I forgot to mention some of the COVID ones. We had a bunch of um, COVID data entry after vaccination use cases uh, run by doctors on Axiom. And they didn't want to run it on our cloud uh, for, you know for patient data reasons, but... Everything ran on their machine and, you know, we didn't touch or see any of their data as a result. And so people do, people run both modes depending on what they want to do. Can you expand more on the cloud offering?
0: Why do people elect that option?
1: Yeah, so the cloud is usually for when you want to remove it from what occurs on your machine, either as a response to an event like a zap or if you just want it to run continuously. So like with the price comparison case, you know, we have a bunch of people doing running bots every minute to, to get prices on things. And you wouldn't really want to run that on your machine. You are not going to leave your machine on 24-7. Um, so that's a you know, classic cloud use case, along with, like, let's say, connecting it to a Zap or an Integra map. You, know, you, know, you have plenty of zaps for, if this happens, do this. So what we sometimes see is if you get an order come in and land in the air table and trigger a Zap, um, then an Axiom bot spins up and then goes and does something. And that that has to be in the cloud, really. You're not really going to connect that up to your local machine. That'll be something where it's just running 24-7 and ready to react. Can you share some details on your roadmap? Where is Axiom headed? Yeah, the main thing right now is just to try and reduce the activation energy to go back to that point. So right now, like, you know, getting started requires a little bit of a setup process. You know, I, I would describe it as potentially high friction setup process. But within the next few days, actually, we're launching a new version where, people can get up and get up and running without having to do much setup at all uh, they literally install the chrome extension have access to the cloud and can run things immediately you know the, the other phase i guess is just um, like teaching all of the concepts to non-technical people we do know like i mentioned there's this subset of power user that gets it really easily but a lot of people come in and if they're not familiar with you know if not familiar with variables for example if they're not familiar with data structures and things like that um, they can struggle so it's really about teaching that to, to the average person who you know, maybe doesn't think in terms of data structures and you know, variables as they're moving stuff around spreadsheets and forms. But if we can teach them that, you know, we kind of really widen the total addressable market for automation in general. But yeah, that's the next phase after, after this next product update to, um, to make it a lot easier for the average person.
0: Well, it sounds like a good milestone and maybe a time for our listeners to consider if this could be a good tool for them. Can you remind us, what is the Hello World scenario?
1: Yeah, the Hello World would be like uh, getting data and uh, displaying it to you or writing it to a sheet. It's pretty easy to do that. Um, You know, go to a, I recommend trying on a very simple website, like let's say Wikipedia, for example, uh, which isn't so fancy, like, you know, some of the other more complex websites you see. Uh, go on that, play around with it, select some data, see if you can get it to, uh, get to, to appear on, your, on the page or get it to write to a Google Sheet. That's a good way to get to grips with um, you know, moving data between systems, which is quite often the core of what we do.
0: Where can people learn more online if they want to follow up?
1: Head over to axiom.ai. Um, let us know if you run into any problems. Um, yeah, we've got reasonably responsive support these days. So, um, yeah, happy to help.
0: Well, Yasser, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily.
1: Thanks a lot, Carl. We appreciate it.